Hello and welcome to O'Connor Day Unplugged on Tuesday, 4th of February 2020. Mark Pender is across the pond stateside. Brian Jackson joins us from Sydney. And I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in a post-Brexit London. Well, according to the Chinese Zodiac, the 25th of January welcome in the year of the white metal rap. Wit, if I got my star signs right, is supposed to be the harbinger of good times for the Chinese economy. While well, the coronavirus, which has now infected around 20,000 people in at least 26 countries outside of China, is having something to say about that. On Monday and again today, the Chinese central bank was forced to make hefty injections of liquidity to calm local stock markets, while elsewhere financial markets have been especially volatile, reflecting the fact that no one at this stage really knows how this will pan out. Consequently, just how damaging the virus could be to global demand and supply chains, all of which makes China the obvious place to start this week's podcast. So, Brian, what's your assessment of the impact so far? And for what's for what it's worth, what's the sense of where things might be going? Well, of course, the, the issue at the moment is that we don't really have uh, very clear uh, information about you know, the, the scale of the problem, uh, the, the length of the problem, uh, the response to the problem. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in Sydney and I, I don't pretend to have, um, you know, on the ground knowledge of, of how this is all going to play out. Uh, so I think, you know, it does mean we're, we're just going to have to, um, you know, be a little bit patient. Uh, of course, it's also uh, exacerbated by the fact that at this time of the year, we don't really uh, have good information on how the Chinese economy is going, even in a, in a regular sort of uh, conditions because of the Chinese New Year uh, uh, holidays. Uh, what that means is that every year they uh, <clears throat> combine all the January and February numbers together to try and, uh, you know, smooth out the impact of the of the timing of the holidays, which differs year to year. And so we don't get any uh, January data uh, this month. And so we have to wait until mid-March, really, before we get all the official uh, economic data for January and February combined. So, you know, the bottom line is we are flying a little bit blind at the moment about exactly what the economic impact of this is going to be. But, you know, I think we can be pretty confident that when those uh, numbers for January and February combined come out in March, it's definitely going to show an impact on on the consumer, on, on businesses, just given all the disruption that we that we have had. Just um, you know, although the official numbers, as I said, won't be out to mid March, we do have the the PMI numbers, which is you know sort mm-hmm. of put out by a private company, and so we have had that uh, over the um, last couple of days. We, we've got manufacturing, I think, it was out on Monday. We're getting the, the services sector this week, so that's really the only thing we've got so far. And what that shows um, for the Chinese manufacturing uh, sector was that, you know, conditions did moderate uh, at the start of the year, but nothing too, um, you know, sort of dramatic from where they were at the end of uh, 2019. OK, what about some of these knock-on effects? If we take it back to your part of the world, we saw the, the RBA not making any change in interest rates yesterday, although it seems like quite a few analysts thought they would do. Now, what China is, Australia's, I think it's right to say, easily their most important export partner. So are there concerns within Australia now that, you know, if this coronavirus does escalate, that uh, you know, it perhaps could be one of the factors which ultimately forces the RBA to come out and cut rates? Uh, it could, yes. I mean, China, I think, is about a third of, uh, takes about a third of our exports. So, yeah, it's a big deal. Um, yeah, I think at the moment, again, uh, officials and, and business people here in Australia are sort of just watching and waiting and, and not overreacting to it. Uh, obviously, we saw the Reserve Bank of Australia meet yesterday, uh, and they actually uh, seemed quite upbeat about uh, the global economy. 
uh, they sort of saw signs that things are improving and, um, you know, I think they said that, you know, this softness in global growth that had been seen since 2018, um, you know, the signs of improving. They did cite uh, the potential for uh, the, the China uh, virus uh, outbreak to, you know, derail any recovery. But, you know, I think at this stage they, they weren't prepared to, um, you know, act on, on uh, you know, the risk that might happen. So if it does uh, deteriorate, sure, uh, they, they, they would be able to react and, I think also um, they're quite confident that the exchange rate will sort of uh, do some of the work for them as well. So at the moment, um, you know, they're definitely sort of in a holding pattern. Okay. Perhaps I'll just move on across to Hong Kong then, because clearly we've got an economy here which was already in recession before we saw a fourth quarter contraction again. And clearly that's before this this outbreak hit in the first place. Obviously, we got the riots and so on, which will impact to the fourth quarter. But presumably Hong Kong must be really struggling at the moment and must be seriously concerned that we could see first quarter of a down, potential downturn there, you know, really being exacerbated by what's gone going on as a result of this outbreak. Sure. I mean, it's just been you know, a terrible 18 months, really, for the Hong Kong economy. Uh, you know, you started off with all the U.S.-China trade problems. Uh, then, you know, the the civil unrest there had a huge impact on, on domestic activity as well. And now you've got this virus um, uh, issue. You know, earlier on this week, we had the first fatality recorded in, in Hong Kong. So, um, you know, th- there's just not a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, grounds for optimism about uh, conditions there uh, in the near term. We are going to have the, uh, the the government deliver its budget in the next uh, few weeks. And so, you know, I expect that they will try and um, provide a bit of a fiscal uh, support to to uh, households and businesses uh, in Hong Kong. But, you know, it's, it's still, I think, going to be a pretty uh, slow uh, recovery from, from the hits that the economy has taken over the last 12, 18 months. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, anything else you uh, want to raise from your part of the world? Uh, yeah, I think uh, you know, just India is also uh, worth mentioning. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the Reserve Bank of India uh, meeting later on in the week. Uh, I think the consensus is that they'll they'll stay on hold, which sounds right to me because you know we, we do have um, a kind of interesting situation in India in that last year uh, officials there were were just really worried that inflation was too low. You know, they have a target range of two percent to six percent. For headline inflation, and you know they're always aiming to get it to around the midpoint of that range, four uh, percent over the medium term. But last year we, we saw headline inflation really stuck at around that three percent level for several months, and in response, it was quite an aggressive series of rate cuts by the Reserve Bank of India over the middle part of last year. You know, 135 basis points in total. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen is that as these rate cuts begin to flow through into the economy. There's also been a surge in food prices. So inflation, which had been, you know, worryingly low for officials uh, just six months ago, has now jumped pretty sharply over the last three or four months. And it's sort of actually moved past that midpoint, 4%, to the top of the range and then through the top of that range to to 7.35% in December. So all of a sudden officials have this situation where inflation uh, is, you know, above where they want it to be pretty quickly. Now... They, they will probably have draw some comfort from the fact that it's mainly been food prices pushing up the headline number. Uh, underlying price pressures look relatively steady, but I think it does mean that you know they're, they're going to be very uh, reluctant to uh, you know, deliver any more of those rate cuts uh, and 
you know, at some stage they might even have to start thinking about taking back some of that monetary stimulus that they gave uh, around the middle of the year last year. All right. Uh, Brian, this is Mark. Yep. Um, I have a question. Uh, you uh, uh, attribute a, at least a significant portion of the spike of inflation to monetary policy flowing through the economy. Um, that is so interesting because uh, other central banks across the uh, uh, the globe are all, have also been cutting rates, not quite as aggressively, but the RBI had a higher um, level to start with. Um, is are the, is cause and effect here um, actually demonstrating for us the the risks of over aggressive monetary policy? Is that what? Uh, um, is that something that the the RBI itself or policymakers there? No, uh, I mean I, I think. I think the the rate cuts definitely have contributed to it, but you know, as as I said, it sort of happened right at the at the same time as there was a surge in food prices. So it's it's hard to disentangle those two impacts. And because food is such a large uh, weighting in the in the headline inflation numbers for India, it's it's a larger weighting than in most other, um, you know, in more sort of developed uh, advanced economies. So you know. I, I wouldn't sort of uh, put too much into that just now. We 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 know that sort of monetary policy does have um, a bit of a lag before it really flows through into uh, some of those numbers. So I think the food price surge is probably the main thing that's pushed up that headline number. But yeah, there's no doubt that um, you know the, the the policy relief is also going to have an impact. Uh, you know, both over the you know the short term, but probably more likely over the medium term. Were there any special factors behind the food price surge? Uh, off the top of my head, no, I, I don't. I mean, it was mainly sort of the the, the staples, the vegetables, uh, you know, the, you know, the the main parts of uh, the, that food category. Um, and there's also been a bit of a, an impact from fuel prices as well. Okay, thanks for that, Brian. Um, Mr. Pender, your neck of the woods. Then, okay. um, would it would it be fair to say we seem to be getting at least some tentative signs of a turnaround in the U.S. manufacturing sector? Is it sustainable <laughs> if that is the case? And I guess more immediately, does it bode well for Friday's key employment report? I guess you're talking about the ISM uh, report that we had yesterday. I am. Um, that popped up uh, above, um, you know, out of the forty range where it had been. For, uh, through the most of the second half of last year, uh, it uh, underperformed other um, anecdotal surveys, uh, and there's quite a variety of them over here. Um, but it's the most closely watched one, and I think it gets over uh, play in uh, forecasters' uh, views of things. But uh, it was a positive, and there's other uh, signs of uh, the economy. Um, uh, you know, growth uh, slowed quite a bit, in, especially in the manufacturing sector. Um, and there are signs that that uh, began to improve perhaps at the beginning of the year. Uh, manu uh, uh, the kind of the consensus for manufacturing payrolls, which will be released Friday with the employment report, is for contraction, a, a 6,000. Uh, decline and the other in uh, also part of that ISM report and also part of the market PMI, which is a national level, uh, not a regional level, which we, the U.S. has a lot of, um, showed uh, declining backlog orders, and um, that's often tied with employment. Uh, the need for factory employment is tied to having backlogs to work down, and both those samples showed. Um, declines outright contraction in back uh, backlogs and slowing in uh, in one report 
in uh, employment and, ac and uh, actual contraction for uh, factory payrolls. So um, maybe that little burst we saw at the beginning of the year was working down backlogs. And new orders, though, were very strong uh, uh, in the ISM report. Um, we had factory orders uh, um, this morning. And uh, a, they uh, it was isolated to defense aircraft, uh, the gains. Um, but uh, outside of that, it was pretty flat with in court uh, capital goods really uh, looking weak. And that's an, uh, uh, not a good sign for business investment. So if business investment is going to be strong, the factory sector isn't going to have a very good year. It's still too early to tell. Uh, I think uh, there is definitely malaise for uh, the outlook, although some of these sentiment uh, Numbers, both on the consumer and on the business level, have been improving this uh, over the last month. So maybe uh, there will be an uptick in uh, in capital goods orders as uh, as the year unfolds. Okay, fair enough. Hope then. Um, talking about what about the State of Union address tonight? Uh, are markets got any interest in that, or is it just seen a bit of politicking? No, it's going to be a lot of politics. Yeah, the, uh, there's a lot of politics going on right now. Of course, we had the Iowa caucuses that we're still trying to uh, wait for the <laughs> outcome there. Um, and I just, if I just want to say something about po uh, uh, government policy, it's incredibly uh, stimulative. Uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans are are uh, spending lots of money, and uh, we saw the construction spending, for instance, uh, uh, that was released uh, on Monday. And you could see like 17% year-on-year growth in uh, government, in federal spending on um, on roads, on the wall, <laughs> and uh, also uh, local government, uh, very, very like 11%, something like that. And so combined, uh, this is a very significant amount of stimulus um, being provided to the economy. It's an election year, uh, but this is the new... The new world, we can print money, you know, quantitative easing, we, the, the, the government can spend unlimited amounts of money, and it, it doesn't seem to uh, be a, a political concern or even much of an economic concern, and it, it certainly isn't hurting the stock market. So, Okay, until it all goes wrong, of course. All right. Um, thanks, Mark. Um, right. OK, wrap things up with uh, the Europe side of things. Then. And I guess it's still really quite depressing news over here. Kick off with the Eurozone. Last week, we had the preliminary estimate of fourth quarter Eurozone GDP. And that showed growth of just a 0.1% rate on a quarter on quarter basis. That was down from 0.3% in the third quarter. Put that in perspective, not only is it just, well, awful in absolute terms, miserable number, but it's also the worst performance we've seen from GDP since the first quarter of 2013. Uh, and that was the last time we actually saw um, a downturn, an absolute contraction in total output. Annual growth now stands at just 1.0%, an axis six-year low. So if the real-side numbers weren't bad enough to, to keep markets at least thinking about possible further central bank easing, then if nothing else, any kind of talk about an early hike in interest rates or tightening out the ECB really went out the window with the January inflation report. If people remember we saw a surprisingly sharp jump in uh, the underlying, the narrow underlying measure of inflation in the Eurozone in December, November and December figures up to 1.3%. That was from 1.1% previously and the strongest reading we've seen in a long while. Well, all of that was reversed in the, the flash numbers for January. So we're back down to 1.1%, which essentially just means that the underlying trend remains solidly flat. Inflation now is really no different from where it was 
was in underlying terms and compared to a year, almost two years ago. So all this idea that, well, perhaps at long last, we're starting to see some kind of acceleration coming through in Eurozone prices. Well, it doesn't seem to hold too much water at the moment, which means that when we get into uh, the next ECB meeting, that'd be on March the 12th, it could well be that the tone's going to be a little bit, a little bit more downbeat than we've seen of late. And it does seem, at least for now anyway, that they'll be looking to retain their at least easing bias, as in they still see their economic risk assessment being on the downside. Um, away from the Eurozone, as far as the UK is concerned, of course, we had Brexit happening late last Friday. Um, but as we talked about before, it doesn't actually mean a great deal at the moment in the sense that uh, we now enter this transition period where they'll be, they'll be in entertaining these trade negotiations through December time, uh, during which period the UK will remain both in the EU customs union and part of a single market as well. However, what does it mean in terms of big picture stuff? Well, if you think about the EU now, it's uh, shrunk by one country down to 27 from the 28. And potentially more importantly, in terms of the likes of you know, trading power and the overall size of the economy, it's lost 15% of its GDP as a result of the UK pulling out. So that's around about, what, 2.4 trillion euros or so. So it is a fairly major hit to the, to the Euro European economy, continental European economy in itself and something you know to bear in mind in the future. Um, more important, I suppose, more immediately oh, sorry, as far as... Yeah. Sorry, Jeremy, just on that. Yeah. We'll, we'll, um, I guess there's going to be a lot of work then in adjusting sort of GDP numbers for the EU and other economic data. Well, has there been a lot of work sort of talking about how, you know, we should be interpreting uh, EU data going forward with the UK? Well, Yes and yes. Well, kind of yes and no, I suppose, to any extent. Yes, I mean, clearly you're right. They're going to have to um, adjust the EU data. But having said which, they actually started releasing figures uh, for EU excluding the European Kingdom, uh, United Kingdom yeah. rather, uh, what, a couple of years or so ago now. So in many ways, they've been preparing for this for some considerable while. And of course, as far as financial markets are concerned, they really look at the Eurozone data. And because the UK was never part okay. of the Eurozone in the first place, fortunately, that's something we don't have to worry about. But yes, it does mean just in, in terms of the, the EU numbers themselves, they will be that much more different now, simply because the, you know, the second largest member of the EU ain't a member of the EU anymore. Um, more immediately ahead, though, it is worth bearing in mind that although Brexit may have happened officially as of um, late last Friday, markets will be looking very closely at how these trade negotiations go. And so we saw a fairly sharp sell-off of the pound um, early on out of UK trading this morning. And that was on the back of the apparently the hardline approach being adopted uh, by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who's already trying to you know, lay down his, his idea of what sort of trading relationship he wants with the UK with the EU, what he's prepared to give away, which isn't a lot, and what he's not prepared to give away, which is, which is quite a lot. So already we're back into this kind of fractious um, negotiating stance between the UK and, and the European Union about what's going to happen in the future. And clearly, as far as financial markets or sterling investors are concerned, they really want to see by the end of this year a trade arrangement which effectively leaves the UK as closely aligned and trading freely with the rest of the, with the European Union. 
union as it was when the UK was part of the union itself. The danger is, if you take Johnson at face value, that we don't get anything like that, in which case it starts, if you like, moving towards what markets used to call a hard Brexit. And that would be bad news for the pound. It'd also be bad news for the euro. And that could certainly be something which would trigger a move into alternative major investment currencies like the dollar and certainly the Swiss franc as well. Um, what else should I be mentioned? I think probably as far as the UK is concerned, not really a great deal at the moment. Um, in terms of the numbers, as we touched upon last week, Bank of England didn't do anything last week. Um, they did, though, m really manage down their, their risk assessment view of the economy. They no longer seem to be so committed to the idea that interest rates will have to go up because they're now basically saying that, well, look, we've had some decent survey data for January, uh, which has given the justification to leave interest rates where they were last week. But if the survey data aren't mirrored in the hard data, then they may have to come out and cut interest rates. So in other words, I think it's fair to say as far as their, their kind of forward guidance goes now, it's switched from being really towards a tightening bars to a much more neutral bars. And that's just a reflection of the fact that they don't really know what's happening to the UK economy at the moment. We're going to have a very poor fourth quarter number for fourth quarter GDP next week. But first quarter at the moment, it looks as if it will be OK. But that's purely and simply on the basis of a soft survey data we've had for January and not much else. Okay, I think that's probably it from my side. Is anybody else got anything else they'd like to chip in before we finish? Yes, well, you had you just said um, you uh, almost diminished the importance of the survey data, right? Oh, it, it, but, but the bank of the Bank of England it seemed to react to it very strongly. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't diminish it in the sense that, I mean, for a starting point, you know, markets, markets love survey data because it's up to date and normally beats the official hard data at least by what, a week, two weeks, if not even more. So I think you know, you've got to, you've got to you know, look at the survey data because, you know, asset prices are going to respond to it. Um, the thing, of course, with the surveys, that, you know, sometimes they work well and sometimes they don't. But yes, I think you're perfectly correct to say that you know, markets were thinking about the possibility of a cut in interest rates last Last week, the fact that the bank didn't do it at the end of the day was that they've given, you know, credence to the survey data and kind of putting on the on the back burner the fact that the fourth quarter hard data have looked pretty horrible. So I wouldn't dismiss the survey data by any means, but of course, as you say from you know, from your side, I'm sure you know the likes of the PMIs and for us for CBIs, the surveys and so on, they're normally pretty decently correlated with the likes of GDP or sales over the medium term. On a month-on-month -month basis, though, they can mm -hmm. yeah the correlation can be can be pretty lousy sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, we have the ISM. We even started talking about that. That's very important here. It's just a survey too. Yeah, and it's got to be said, I think, uh, if anyone who has the time to look at you know, the official central bank communiques, or at least uh, you know, the, the full explanations of why or why they haven't done something, invariably the likes of the global PMI will be mentioned within the first paragraph mm. or so as mm. a kind of just you know, broad-based broad summary assessment of what's happening to the international economy. And they came out, uh, they came out yesterday, right? The global P manufacturing PMI, uh, I think it was pretty much flat about it. Uh, it, it. It seems to barely move at all, just hanging around 50. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, I suppose this kind of idea, it's 50.4, if I remember rightly. And it's kind of this idea that, you know, perhaps the worst for manufacturing is over now and there's reason mm -hmm. for a bit of hope. But, you know, again, it's kind of early days yet. And we don't really know whether it's uh, the bottom or else we're just, you know, pause on, on, the, on the descent, so to speak. Okay, um, Brian, you happy? You finished? Anything else yeah, all good here. Yeah, just, all uh, good. as I said, we're just waiting for further news about... Uh, 
you know, the virus, and hopefully, uh, you know, that will be good, and they'll be able to uh, get it under control pretty soon. Yeah, we all hope for that. Okay, well, that's it for this week then from Mark, Brian, and myself. Thanks as always for listening. Don't forget to tune in again next week. In the meantime, remember, you can find all the key market moving data and events listed and analysed in Econoday's global economic calendar. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.